Welcome, everyone, to episode 37 of the Mainspring Family Wellness Podcast. Kristen, can you believe it's already the holidays? I know. It's so crazy. It's creeping up, and time is moving so fast. And I'm really excited about the holidays, but what I really am most excited and passionate about during the holiday season is philanthropy and getting involved in big ways and small ways and just really teaching my children about empathy and community service. Mm. And I'm that's why I'm super excited about today's episode. Yeah, today's episode is part of our nonprofit spotlight series. Mm-hmm. And we're going to chat with Jennifer Friend. She is just such an exceptional woman, so smart, and she is the CEO of Project Hope Alliance. And Project Hope Alliance is an incredible organization here in Orange County. They provide valuable support and resources to children who are experiencing homelessness. And their mission is to end the cycle of homelessness Mm -hmm. one child at a time. And they're already doing this. And they have been in the Newport Mesa School Mm -hmm. District. And now they're beginning in the Huntington Beach Unified School District. So we're just thrilled to have Jennifer on the show today. Yeah, I first learned about Project Hope Alliance through my children's school. They had partnered with them for a large service project. And um, it's really incredible the impact they've had on the local community and the public school system and really helping to end the cycle of homelessness for children. So I'm really excited to meet Jennifer and really hear about her special, powerful, inspirational story that she's going to share with us. Okay, let's do it. This is Mainspring Family Wellness, where transformation takes root. This podcast is for parents pursuing both personal growth and family wellness. We will cover relevant topics that help us reflect, make educated choices, and parent effectively. My name is Kristen Perlmutter. I'm an educator, a philanthropist, and a mother of three who is passionate about personal growth and seeing families at their optimal wellness. And I'm Dr. Jenna Flowers, a marriage and family therapist, author of The Conscious Parent's Guide to Co-Parenting, speaker, and mother of three. Welcome, Jennifer, to our podcast. Thank you so much for being a guest uh, on today's episode, which is part of our nonprofit spotlight series. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to both of you all about Project Hope Alliance and the work we're doing in the community. Well, tell us a little more about Project Hope Alliance and your journey to becoming the CEO of this organization. Well, the journey is a a long one that started in my childhood, but first I'll just share a bit about what we do at Project Hope. Uh, Our nonprofit is focused on ending the cycle of homelessness one child at a time. So in our community, we see, unfortunately, a lot of our unhoused or unsheltered neighbors, mostly adults. And so that's kind of the face of homelessness that we think about when we're thinking about homelessness. Maybe someone uh, on a freeway off-ramp holding a sign or someone that's outside of a grocery store, maybe asking for assistance or help. But what a lot of people don't see is that in the state of California, there are enough identified kids experiencing homelessness in our public school system that it fills Dodger Stadium five times over. So that I know, right? That's just under about 300,000 kids. And what we know at Project Hope is that these kids are resilient, they're gritty, 
they're determined, they're incredibly tenacious and creative. They just need someone to fill in the gaps and eliminate the barriers that homelessness causes in their life. And that's what we do. We show up for our kids. We embed ourselves within the public school campus, actually with our own offices on on the campus. We place trauma-informed care case managers there during all open school hours, but they're also on call 24-7. And we just we do life with our kids. So it's anything from making sure that they have the food and clothing that they need to be able to show up prepared for class, or it's helping them connect with mental health services. Um, Maybe it's also helping ensure they have what they need to do uh, marching band or be on the cheerleading squad or the football team. And so we really focus on getting our kids to graduate high school and then into either a two-year college trade school or a four-year college or university so we can end generational homelessness with them. So we won't see them at the end of the freeway off-ramp holding a sign or outside the grocery store when we leave. Well, Jennifer, what an amazing organization that you've begun and um, what a story you have to, to to getting there. Um, and I would just like to hear more about what it was like for you growing up, uh, growing up without a place to really call home. So I shared that. I, I know in the first question, you kind of asked, what was my journey to Project Hope Alliance? And I shared that it was kind of a crazy and long one. So I came to Project Hope Alliance because I actually, as a kid in Orange County, experienced homelessness with my family of six. We lived in different motels. Uh, We couch surfed, which is um, something that a lot of our students that Project Hope serves experience where we were sleeping on the floors of friends' homes or I stayed with friends. And uh, it, it was something that... I didn't share. My family didn't share. Uh, We grew up either living in middle class or upper middle class neighborhoods, or when we were evicted, we went to motels. And so it was very much, um, the only way I can describe it is an economically schizophrenic childhood. Mm. So we had both worlds at the same time trying to navigate those things. And it was... um, there was a lot of shame, as you could imagine. Mm-hmm. I, yes. I went to Newport Elementary, uh, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Then we moved to Huntington Beach, and I did junior high and high school in Huntington. And I, I can remember uh, one particular evening at the Tropic Motel when I was in seventh grade, and I had tried out for a school play that I really wanted to be in, and I'd gotten the part that I wanted. But the Tropic Motel was in Garden Grove. Uh, My family, we had one car. My mom was a preschool teacher in Huntington Beach. And each day we barely had enough gas money to get everyone dropped off at school, get my mom picked up, and get us back to the motel. And the school play required rehearsals five days a week. And my family didn't have the gas money to be able to get me to those rehearsals. And I couldn't ask anyone for a ride because no one knew where it was that I was living. And I remember thinking to myself, what is the point of trying if when I try and I'm able to accomplish what I want, I can't actually do it because of something outside of my control? Hmm. And I made a decision actually that day. And uh, to be honest, it it came from a faith place. I, I really believe that the Holy Spirit spoke into me and said, your life will not always be this way. Just keep trying. 
And so I decided that I was going to continue to try and that even if things like that happened again, which they did, that I still was going to believe that my life wasn't always going to look like that. And that's what I bring to the work at Project Hope Alliance is letting the kids know that we are there if they try and they do the work, that we're going to make sure that what they need to be successful happens because their life is not always going to look like that. It's one chapter of their life. It's not the whole story. And so I went and I, I worked 50 hours a week and I went to Golden West College and then I transferred to UCI and kept working full time while I was doing that. And then I went to law school. Um, I was very driven to go into a profession where I would always be able to support my family if something happened to my husband. And so I thought, well, I like to talk. My dad used to say I needed a job that paid by the word. <laughs> so I thought maybe law school is it for me. So I made a goal to make partner before the age of 40. So I made partner at 38. Wow. Uh, and I was a civil litigator. I represented a lot of um, large corporate clients. And then I heard about Project Hope. And um, through a lot of sermons and a lot of friends uh, who really pushed me to think about what I was being called into, uh, a mother who sent me uh, The Road Less Traveled told me <laughs> to read that poem and then pray about it and think about what it was that God was calling me into, and a husband who said, well, you know what, we have enough credit that if we have to live on credit cards for two years, because as you can imagine, it was a reverse economic, oh my God. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And so we built a family life around me being a partner at a large law firm and him being you know, successful in real estate. And so the mortgage wasn't going to need to look the same when right. I changed my job. Um, but that I'm going into my ninth year now. Uh, and it was the it was the best the best decision that I that I ever made uh, outside of marrying my husband and I feel like it that's what I was created for. Um, I used to think that I was successful in business despite what I went through as a kid, and now I actually know that it was because of what I went through. Um, that you know that necessity of being tenacious and creative and reverse engineering every possible, you know, kids experiencing homelessness spend an exorbitant amount of time reverse engineering life, mm. right? Can you speak more to that? What yeah. does that mean? So um, let's say that MUN, so I was in Model United Nations uh, when I was in high school, and we had these conferences, and these conferences were expensive. Mm -hmm. And so I would look at the end goal. So the end goal is to get to this conference. How much does this conference cost? Okay, well, that means if I babysit, you know, 20 times between now and then, then I can make X amount of dollars. And so everything you do, your goal, you have to reverse engineer how to make it possible instead of just saying yes and, like, waiting to realize the dream if you um my brothers all played high school football right so you have to get to practice and maybe you're sleeping at a friend's house um on the floor in garden grove but you know you have practice the next day maybe you think well gosh if i ask my buddy who lives by the high school if i could spend the night at their house the night before practice then i can walk from their house in the morning to practice right so it's a lot of time and energy that you spend just trying to figure out how to make things happen. Mm. But 
gosh, that's been very helpful to me, especially navigating COVID and running a business because, you know, the ability to look at what the goal is, right? So our goal is to ensure that students experiencing homelessness have what they need to be able to graduate high school. During COVID, I knew that was the goal. We had to reverse engineer how to make that possible when all the schools were shut down. So that skill set that I learned as a seventh grader has served me well at 51. So... Wow. Yeah, and it sounds like it's really serving the community too. You know, I really appreciate how passionate you are from your on your your personal story, and it made me think that truly our our greatest suffering is often our greatest ministry. And it sounds like that's what you have really put together here for Project Hope Alliance. I never ever would have imagined that. Um, I, I remember sitting in the pew during uh, a sermon that uh, one of my closest girlfriends, Kelly Comisher, was preaching on Esther, talking about for such a time as this and how Esther was both, you know, the king's wife, but she was also Jewish. So she had the ability to bring together the two worlds and lead people forward in a way that other people weren't maybe their life hadn't uniquely qualified them for. Mm. And I was thinking, well, you know, I'm a partner in a law firm. I'm a blonde chick with freckles who lives in Eastside Costa Mesa, and I also was a homeless kid. So when people try to project onto the issue of homelessness a particular face, Mm. a particular, maybe it's racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, educational background, in order to other a group of people, I sort of didn't give them that opportunity because I looked like maybe them or their daughter or their wife or their grandchild. Um, And so it opened doors for me to talk to people that maybe someone else wouldn't have been able to talk to. But most importantly, it gave me the deep understanding uh, and zealous pursuit of anything being possible for our kids because I watched things being possible for my brothers and I that we never, never could have dreamed of. Hmm. So truly inspirational story. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, can you share any other stories from some of the families that you've worked with at Project Hope? Their stories of adversity and um, change, positivity. Absolutely. So I'm mean, we're uh, as you can imagine with the schools closing during COVID, um, and then soon to come the. Uh, lifting of the eviction moratorium, the number of kids experiencing homelessness in our community has has risen significantly. So just at just in this last fiscal year alone, we served just under 1,500 kids in Orange wow. County experiencing homelessness. We grew over 450%. Uh, and the families that we are continuing to see are the same types of families, quite honestly, that we've always seen. So oftentimes drivers like health issues, uh, job loss, obviously. A lot of our parents are undereducated, which means that they may not even have a high school degree. And so the types of jobs that are available to them are often in the service industry. In Orange County, we have so many service industry jobs available, which is why families want to live here. Not because they think, wow, Orange County is a you know rad place to live. They want to live here because there are opportunities to work. And mm-hmm. most of our parents are working two jobs, sometimes three. 
Um, we also have a lot of families. There's one story in particular I can share with you, a mom of three children. She immigrated here um, from Iran, and she was in an extremely physically abusive relationship. She left that relationship in the middle of the night, was living in her car with her kids, she came to us. We started working with her, working with her kids. We actually were able to support mom and get her through um, physician's assistant training. And we wow. paid for that and then navigated childcare and all of those things. Well, during COVID, I went to UCI Medical Center because I had a sinus infection. And all of a sudden, you know, we're all masked up and, and, and you know, some are masked with like the goggles and the, the full hazmat kind of situation going on. And this woman comes in and says, Miss Friend, can you can you follow me? And her voice was a little bit shaky. And we get into the room and she takes off her mask and she takes off her goggles and she says, do you remember me? And I said, I absolutely remember you. And that it was that mom. Wow. And she now works at UCI Medical Center. And her, her one, her oldest has already graduated from high school and is in college. And and we just held each other. We actually got in a lot of trouble because before <laughs> the doctor came by. And, and fair, fair enough. Yeah. UCI is, is the most outstanding medical institution in our county. Zot, zot, zot. I, I'm a proud anteater. But so she was like, but that moment, right, that profound yeah. moment of anything being possible, she just needed someone to walk along. She did all the work. Let's be honest, okay? This woman did all all the work. She had all the courage, all the bravery. Similarly, there was a student at Newport Harbor who was living in a tent in the back bay. And he was living in a tent with his two parents who had serious mental health issues. Oh, and wow. so he didn't want to leave. He didn't want to leave them. Um, he is now applying to law school. Mm. So, you know, our graduation rate um, for our students experiencing homelessness is more than 20 percent above the national average. Because we're able to be there in real time for these kids, and they want nothing more than to be successful. They, how do how do these families find you? Yeah, so it's it's so many different ways. We have been fortunate to have a, moms will refer other moms. If you're living in a motel and maybe another family comes in, the moms talk. They also have to kind of band together sometimes just for childcare, right, and and resources. So that's one way. When we're on the school campus, though, we get referrals from the principal the school counselor. Actually, the school janitors are some of our best eyes and ears because they're mm. the ones letting the kids into the gym to take a shower before class, right, at 6 a.m. Or the nutrition workers who see kids lining up at 6.30 in the morning to get food the second that that window opens up. So we have embedded ourselves within the school culture, and those are referrals that come directly from the, the campus itself. But one of the most most um, special level of referral, the kids actually bring their friends in. Mm -hmm. So our office really just becomes a safe place for kids to get help when they need it, but also not be labeled or stigmatized by their housing situation because that doesn't define who they are. And that's one of the reasons why we say students experiencing homelessness instead of homeless students, right? Because they're not homelessness. They're themselves. And right now in this particular chapter of their life, their housing situation is, is you know, something that 
involves homelessness, but Mm -hmm. it's not who they are. And I wish I would have appreciated and realized that when I was growing up, because I know that there would have been so many more people who would have helped and and risen up to support me. And so we just want that for our kids. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. I mean, I think of all the um, the stereotypes that we, you know, have learned and perpetuated over the years. I mean, especially living here where you see a lot of affluence and opportunity. And I just am curious what about the misconceptions about homelessness. I mean, you've talked about that a little bit. And, um, you know, what... What can we do to educate our children and expose them so that it's not just somebody on the side of the road or maybe asking for money at the grocery store? Um, you know, it's there's stories within their school, within, you know, a couple streets over. And, you know, just I'm curious how you um, get that message across. Well, one of the greatest misperceptions is that um, homelessness is a result of someone being lazy or not yeah. wanting to work or they are um, struggling with substance abuse or mental illness. What I can tell you from the families that we serve at Project Hope is that it's a result of undereducation. It's a result of not making enough money to live in an area where the jobs are. So that's, that's the challenge, right? If they were to move to an area where the cost of living is less, they don't have a job. So if you are a parent and you're trying to make a better life for your kid, you want to go where the work is because you're always believing that you're going to be able to advance yourself, right, in your profession if you you work hard. And so one of the greatest um, misperceptions that we see is that, well, if a family is homeless, it must be because the parents aren't working or they're, they're struggling with substance abuse. And while there is a subset of that, that is a small subset compared to the majority of, of families where the thing that drove them to homelessness was undereducation or domestic violence mm-hmm. or a health issue. I mean, you know, if someone is working an hourly wage job and they get sick, I mean, we've talked to moms who who were evicted because they were going through chemotherapy treatment mm-hmm. and they had they weren't being paid during the time that they were having chemo. So it's important as parents that we internalize that and we realize that, you know, but for the grace of God, you know, there goes I. And there's so much truth to that. Right. And so we can share with our kids, you know, everyone goes through something. Mm-hmm. We all have some type of a, a struggle, a battle. Maybe, you know, there's divorce in a family or maybe there's illness in a family. All of these things can give us empathy and compassion for mm-hmm. someone going through something. And we can talk to our kids about how it is that, you know, just because someone doesn't necessarily have the same financial resources that you have doesn't mean that their life is awful or they're not loved or their parents don't care for them. It just means that the thing that they need in that moment has to do with resources. Maybe the thing that our kids need in a moment has to do with a hug. Mm-hmm. Or has to do with, you know, struggling with ADHD or, you know, there are just so many things. And so bringing a level of empathy to understanding that we all go through something, but we don't have to go through what we're going through alone. And mm-hmm. so being um, conscious of our word choices, yes. being conscious of if there's a kid that's maybe always sitting by themselves or always kind of hanging by themselves or you notice maybe, you know, they don't seem to have a lunch sometimes, 
being very conscious of going over and and having an act of kindness uh, towards that student can sometimes make all the difference in the world. And so that's what that's what I talk to my own kids about. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I live in Eastside Costa Mesa and and. Definitely chronic homelessness has been on an increase as far as the visibility around 17th Street, 19th Street. You know, even we um, lived in the port streets for a while as well. And so, you know, over there as well. And and I've had a lot of conversations with, with my kids. And I try to do things like if it's raining, I keep extra umbrellas in my car. Because if you're experiencing homelessness and you are unhoused, Everything you have, you're walking around with you. You don't have anywhere to dry off. You don't have the ability to have dry clothes. And so that's a safe thing that I can do is to give someone an umbrella. But it also makes my kids think about why it is that that umbrella is so important. Oh, wow. Because, you know, if we get wet, we just go home and change into dry clothes, Mm -hmm. right? So it's also a, a teachable moment for our kids to think about all the things that come with being unhoused. So that's kind of around the chronic adult homelessness. Um, and, and, you know, as parents, we're, we're trying to navigate being safe, um, but also teaching empathy. And so um, the way I've tried to do that is um, keeping food in my car, maybe like protein bars, things like that, umbrellas. There have been times, though, that I felt led to give money. Yeah. Yep. And that's what I do. And, mm-hmm. you know, so I think that I think that it those are conversations we have with our kids, too. Right. Absolutely. I, I've done that before. My kids will ask, like, how do you how do we decide who to give money to? And that's always my answer. Just if my heart tells me that to give somebody that money right then and there, that's that's what I do. That's just if you feel it in your heart. Yeah. So um, without judgment, because a lot of times I think there's judgment with what's going to happen to the money, perhaps. Or Have you ever encountered a family that doesn't want to take you up on your services? Yes. Can you share with us a little more about what that mentality is about? Well, I actually... Uh, it's it's one particular family that we probably all of us sitting here at this table have maybe seen this family um, because the and and I don't really know quite candidly if it actually is I don't know that everyone belongs to one another mm-hmm. um, and so that family I I, I think that um, and and I've heard that they actually are not experiencing homelessness. So I've, I've, I've interacted with the particular family probably more than 12 times. What I can tell you, though, I've never met a family that was actually experiencing homelessness that didn't want our help. They didn't want help. Not ever once. So what can happen sometimes, and, and I, as a parent, I can appreciate and respect this, is that the family will come and they will accept food, hygiene, uh, bus passes, gas cards. But when we say we would love to work with your child to catch them up academically, we'd love to create enrichment opportunities in the life of your child. Some parents are a little bit hesitant because, in all honesty, they don't know us. Mm -hmm. And so bringing anyone into the life of your child in a way that's relational, you, if you have healthy boundaries, you're going to want to make sure that that person is okay. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we have found that with some parents, especially if we're dealing with issues of immigration status, a lot of parents think that 
their children can be taken away from them because Mm -hmm. they're sleeping in the car. They don't realize that it's not illegal, for lack of a better term, to be homeless. Mm -hmm. So they're worried that if they open themselves up to us and their children, that then maybe we're going to turn them in Mm, to social services. So we respect and honor. You know, it's really a very sacred thing to walk alongside someone when they're in crisis. So we meet them where they're at. But we've never met anyone who was like, yeah, I'm good. Thanks. You know, Hmm. Jen, what does the law say about homelessness then with families? I guess I I think I'm a little confused by that as well. Yeah. So it really has to do with whether or not the child is in any type of immediate physical danger or is being neglected. So it's... It's a bigger issue maybe than I have time to to talk to you about right now. Um, But what I can tell you is just the mere fact of sleeping in your car, definitely living in a motel or couch surfing, is not something that would warrant your children to be taken away from you. Um, Because, you know, my parents were taking very good care of my brothers and I, even though we were in the midst of experiencing homelessness, if that makes sense, yeah. right? Because yes. so, there was an economic crisis, but yet right. people were still taken care of. You had that's right some kind of roof over your head, even though it wasn't what they were financially providing. That's right. And we were going to school, and, and we were loved, and we weren't being abused, and we weren't being neglected. So mm-hmm. all of those things. But, you know, it really, it, it, if you can imagine a time when you've really been struggling with something that you had shame associated with it Mm -hmm. and you really needed help and maybe thinking I can't talk to anyone because they're going to judge me they're going to judge my family they're going to what is that going to look like imagine that if what you're struggling with is the ability to feed your kids or have your kids have a place to sleep at night. So Jen can you share with us a little more maybe about what happens with teens where they've already experienced chronic homelessness, and perhaps uh, they've also been targeted uh, for human trafficking, for substance abuse issues. They're in a vulnerable position. And then Project Hope finds them, but they might not be so receptive to what Project Hope has to offer because of a mentality that's already been ingrained in themselves, self-esteem issues, maybe already substance abuse has kind of taken over in their lives. What do you do with that portion of the population? I mean, that's a really good question because, um, you know, one of the reasons we want to be upstream on this issue is so that kids and youth experiencing homelessness today do not become chronically homeless adults tomorrow, right? And so how do we intervene and how do we generationally disrupt kind of that system or that process? And you're absolutely right. Our kids... You know, you just take, for example, uh, human trafficking, sex trafficking. Our kids that are living in motels are just, they are on the radar of every sex trafficker. Um, They are, you know, a lot of sex traffickers live in motels. They recruit from motels, and then they also house sex workers um, in motels as well. And so we have... One young man in particular that's currently living in a motel, 
and he has been targeted for um, gang recruitment. So a gang has been actively trying to recruit him. Simultaneously, someone, an adult, who um, we, we haven't been able to completely confirm that the person is a sex trafficker, but we're pretty sure um, this man has been grooming this young man actually to to go into a physical relationship with him so that he can then turn it into we believe a um a, a sex trafficking relationship and so we have been working with the parents we have to go in and we have to educate the parents who right now um parents are not together um this particular youth is living with um his single mom and she is so overwhelmed right now he's not the only child that she has and during covid trying to navigate all of her kids doing school before we we walked into it she had three kids trying to do school on one old iphone that had the most limited data plan you could imagine so the kids were taking turn what day each kid would go to school right um trying to get her to a place where she can accept and receive what we're telling her about this one gentleman. It was easier with the gang because mom, as well as dad, both had gang experience. Dad had been in a gang. Um, You know, stepping in and saying, we have an opportunity to turn him in the right direction, but it's going to take all of us. And, you know, understandably, when you are kind of um, on fire in crisis, it's, it's hard to stop and think about that. Um, one thing that, that we know is that when our kids don't have the um, emotional support, they don't have the mental health support, and they don't know that someone is there for them on their team, you know, they turn to a lot of risky behaviors, whether it be um, sexual risky behaviors. Uh, During COVID, we saw a lot of that. A lot of our young girls in particular were engaging in things like sex with strangers because they had no relationship or even connection to people when the schools closed down. I mean, we're only just beginning to start looking at the consequences to our most vulnerable kids as a result of the school shutdowns. Um, They were immense, I can tell you. And so going in there, sometimes we might have a parent that's resistant. Um, We have teens that are resistant too. There's this one young man and he was involved in a gang. He was struggling with substance abuse. We went in and we said, we we wanna help you. No, I don't need help, I don't need help. During COVID, I happened to actually be the one in the office that day, and he came back with tears in his eyes, and he said, I need your help. Can you please give me Bonita's phone number? So we're just, we're there for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you have to meet them where they're at, and you have to understand that it is a sacred moment. And sometimes that kid may not be ready for your help that day, but if you don't go anywhere and you're still on their school campus every day, and they walk by your office on their way to math, there's always that opportunity and that possibility that they're going to go in the door. Yeah, it sounds like Project Hope Alliance really um, embodies a secure attachment. Yeah. The stable force um, in a child's very inconsistent life. That's the one thing that that is transformational, quite honestly. You can say, yes, it's great that we're able to provide basic needs. It's great that we're able to fill out FAFSA forms. That stable, trusted adult 
that journeys with them and is for them every day, regardless of what they're going through, is the thing that makes all the difference in the world. And that's what the research says about trauma as well. If you want to see a child actually heal through trauma, they it really comes back to the secure attachment they have with some kind of caregiver. And it sounds like Project Hope Alliance really represents that. If their own you know, family members maybe aren't as secure and available to them. I mean, and anytime somebody's in a survivalistic mode, right, there's going to be these loopholes that happen, like that particular um, story of the, the young man that is potentially being groomed, and then the mom's feeling very overwhelmed. No, that's right. And and it that that is that's the difference maker. And and that's why we're in it for the deep heart work. And so we've been very careful to never want to just be bigger. We've really been focusing on the work. So that number of just under 1,500 kids, that's across all our programs. But when you look at our campus site-based programs, we'll be at just under 300 uh, in January. So we've dramatically grown, but we're never going to grow past that 30 to 1 ratio. So for every one case manager, that case manager only has 30 kids because we're in it for the long game. We're in it to be generational disruptors. You know, my brother's kids and, and my kids, they won't ever experience homelessness. Yeah. And education has the ability partnered, obviously, with that consistent, stable, trusted adult to change the game mm-hmm. like yeah. nothing else. Mm-hmm. But you're also doing something very systemic. It sounds like you also have to work with the families as well, not just the child, right? Because as we talked about, like sometimes families can also be the obstacles from a child getting the needs that they actually need met. No, that's absolutely right. And unless you take a multi-generational approach, especially with our littles, right? right? So our kindergarten through eighth grade students they don't have that much agency over their lives. Right. So everything that we do, actually we do in partnership and through our relationship with the parents. The great thing is that our team, 75% of our team is multilingual English-Spanish. 78% of our students actually identify as Latinx. And so we have the ability to communicate uh, directly with the parents in a way that makes the parents feel comfortable, both culturally as well as um, just from a safety security Mm -hmm. standpoint. And so if you don't work with the parents in partnership, you're absolutely right. There are opportunities when the kids get older, though, where sometimes some of those barriers are lifted between the parents because um, the kids are able, they have agency. We take kids to get their driver's licenses, right? So um, we've, we've secured cars for kids or bicycles. So we can partner with them to do some of, some of the things that we need. But especially during COVID, um, we have, you know, there's been um, a cultural barrier to our, a lot of our kids accessing mental health services because some of our parents have a keen distrust for mental health services. Um, and so that's been something that we've had to work really hard on. But during COVID, parents saw how desperately their kids needed help and they didn't, they knew that they did not have the tools or resources to help their kids. And so a good thing that came out of it was we were able to overcome a lot of the stigma barriers around mental health care, even um, medication maybe. And so we have seen a lot of our kids really growing 
up in health and mental health through COVID because parents kind of didn't have a have a choice. Yeah. And they loved their kids and they knew that they didn't know how to help them. So sometimes the worst situations can also bring some of the greatest growth. Well, so, you know, I was just thinking about um, our listeners and how what they can do to support Project Hope Alliance and maybe hopefully involve their kids. Is there any suggestions you might make for the holiday season? Absolutely. And and I, you know, this is obviously a heavy conversation because what we're talking about is a very heavy subject. But in the midst of that heaviness, there is hope all around it. So mm-hmm. I don't want people to listen and feel discouraged. Instead, what I would like for people to take away from this is we know the heaviness and we know the obstacles, but we also know that if we can just get a kid to graduate from high school, they're almost 400 percent less likely to be homeless as an adult. Just that one thing. OK, and we can do that. And we're doing that in our community at a rate over 20 percent above the national average. Wow. So the good news is that we know what we're doing and what we're doing works. And our kids are actually ending the cycle of homelessness. So I want people to feel encouraged by that. I want yes. people to feel encouraged by the fact that when I started as a volunteer at Project Hope, our total operating budget was $80,000. We now pour more than $2.3 million into the Orange County community at Project Hope Alliance. So it's incredible. And that, and that really has been a mom grassroots-led effort. We're going on to Huntington Beach High School's campus um, starting next month to start serving uh, my fellow Oilers who are, you know, who, yeah. who are going through things that I went through when I was there. And so there's lots of opportunities for folks to get involved. We're going to need a mighty army in Huntington Beach to rise up. So if there are any HB moms that are listening, HB dads that are listening, uh, please reach out to to us. Hope for the Holidays has just officially launched. Um, we are going to be providing um, full Santa's Christmas list for 300 students. $100 donation makes that entire Christmas list come true for one kid. So folks can go to projecthopealliance.org backslash holidays to look at that. And with that actually comes opportunities to gift wrap. Um, We turn our community space into Santa's workshop. So we need volunteers to show up at Project Hope and put Santa's workshop together. And that includes kids. Mm. We we have lots of family-friendly volunteer opportunities. And so whether it's uh, stocking Santa's workshop, wrapping the gifts, getting us ready for Thanksgiving, We do a big distribution Um, at Thanksgiving. We're looking at over 500 families that we should be able to bless this Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. as well. Um, We also have mentoring opportunities. So we have the opportunity for folks to meet and mentor one of our kids. It requires one hour a week and a one-year commitment. But we have mentors that have been doing it now for six years straight. Mm. Um, It's very meaningful. So, yeah, ProjectHopeAlliance.org is the place to go. Um, it It is really incredible to be able to do something about this heavy issue and raise our kids up to know that they have power to do something as well. Yes. Incredible. And that does give me a lot of hope and hopefully our listeners as well. Thank you so much for sharing your story and educating us about this amazing organization. 
Thank you. I mean, you know, we never really know why we have our stories sometimes until it's been revealed to us. And it's been an absolute joy to, to share mine and the work of Project Hope Alliance with both of you. So thank you so much for having me. Thank, thank you. you. Okay. That was such an inspiring story. I just want to acknowledge how much I cried during that episode and nobody could even see it. (laughs) I know. It was truly moving. I mean, hearing Jennifer's story and her experiences growing up and how she came out of that with such drive and positivity and And grit. It's a story of grit. Is truly, truly impressive. It really shines a light, too, on the fact that homelessness doesn't always look like the family outside Mm -hmm. the grocery store. Yeah. Or um, somebody asking for change or the person pushing the cart with all their belongings. Yeah, it's true. And it just it feels so timely with the holiday season. This is the time to give back and be grateful for what we have and contribute in ways that we that we can in our community and more importantly get our kids involved yes, in that. Yes, getting our kids involved in the in the contribution. It sounds like Project Hope Alliance also has a lot of opportunities for families to volunteer, to also raise awareness and and money and to really help mm-hmm. the families that are involved with Project Hope Alliance, not just the children because it is a systemic issue. Yes. You also have to walk alongside the families. But for more information on Project Hope Alliance and all the ways you can help, please visit our show notes. And for our classes and services, please visit our website at MainspringFamilyWellness.com. We are now offering an array of bodywork services as well, so come check us out. Yeah. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Mainspring Family. We hope everyone has a very happy Thanksgiving and holiday season. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.